Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Landon Johnson as he shares this week's message. So uh, today we're going to be talking about the Apostles' Creed. You might have been wondering why we did that as part of our order of service. You'll find out at the end why we did it at the order of service, because first we're going to understand what it is. But first, a salacious story, a Tesla car crash. Anyone read this uh, story in the news from uh, earlier this month? Tesla went over the edge of the cliff. Pretty gnarly wreck there. Go to the next one, Ben. It's like, whew. Luckily, no one died. Let me read to you a little snippet from the uh, news post. A four-year-old girl, a nine-year-old boy, and two adults survived on Monday after their car plunged off a northern California cliff along the Pacific Coast Highway near an area known as the Devil's Slide. It's an area known for fatal wrecks, the official said. The Tesla sedan plummeted more than 250 feet from the highway and crashed into a rocky outcropping. It appears to have flipped a few times before landing on its wheels, wedged between a cliff and the surf. Uh, talking to someone who does uh, rescues in that area, he says, uh, crashes along Devil's Slide rarely end with survivors. On Monday, the victims were initially listed in critical condition, but all four are conscious and alert. And we go, um, we go there all the time for cars that go over the cliffs, and we never find survivors. So this was an absolute miracle, Pottinger said. He was the gentleman that they interviewed. And so that was an incredible enough story in and of itself. But then there was a twist. Two days later, a follow-up article. A 41-year-old man in California faces multiple charges after he allegedly drove off the cliff with his wife and two children on purpose, authorities said. The driver was arrested on suspicion of attempted murder and child endangerment, according to the arrest report. He's going to be formally booked, and uh, investigators claim that they had developed probable cause to believe that this was an intentional act. So this is a metaphor going over the edge of a cliff. And the metaphor in our context, theologically, is what happens when you are encountered with something that is heretical in your life. So let me do a quick little uh, example. You know me, I'm a fairly normal guy. One day I show up and I say, I've got this cool new idea, guys. I'm gonna call it swoon theory. So I'm having trouble, you see, in my group of friends, a lot of them are like scientists and they don't believe in supernatural things and it's embarrassing for me to say I believe in the resurrection, so I've come up with this idea. Christ didn't actually die on the cross. He just lost a lot of blood, and he fell unconscious. He swooned. And then later, he revived inside of the tomb, woke up, and so over the course of history and people telling stories, this became this fantastical myth about a guy resurrecting. But really, he just kind of fell unconscious and then came up again. Now, how many of you would say, oh, cool idea, Landon? Good. No one raised their hands. (laughs) Red flags going up all over the place, right? Bad idea. Yeah, right? So that's a relatively new idea. That came about in like the late 1700s because people were embarrassed at the idea of uh, things being supernatural. What about stuff that started from the very beginning of Christianity? There's an idea called adoptionism. So if I showed up and I said, okay, so the virgin birth seems unlikely, right? We know what makes babies. If there's not a man and a woman involved, there's no baby. So there probably wasn't a virgin birth. But what if Jesus was adopted by God when he was baptized? So he lived a great life, he's a very holy man, a great teacher, and then he's obedient to God, he gets baptized, and God says, ah, now I will adopt you as my son. And then he grants him supernatural powers as a result of that. So prior to that, he's a normal human being, but then he proves himself to be worthy of God's adoption. 
not quite so far off the path, but hopefully that is sending up just as many red flags for you, and you're saying, what in the world are you thinking, Landon? So those are both heretical ideas. Those are outside of the pale of what is acceptable for a Christian to believe. But how do we define what heresy is? Is it, like Monty Python says, a witch, now we need to burn her? Or is it, as the, uh, uh, say, they say in the dictionaries, a much better uh, definition of it, an opinion or doctrine at variance with the orthodox or accepted doctrine of a church or religious system? Okay? We, the churches have agreed ideas upon that we all say, this is what's true. If you're outside of that, far enough, that becomes a heresy. Right? The, the willful and persistent rejection of an article of faith by a baptized member of the church. So we know what heresy is. It's pretty serious stuff. It is equivalent to going off the edge of a cliff. So our question is, how can we avoid it? How can we avoid something like heresy? And the answer is guardrails. Got to put something there to stop you. So if you're going to go over the edge, something's there to keep you from flying off the edge. So as we dive into this, uh, let's say a quick little prayer, and then we're going to look at what these, uh, we're going to call them theological guardrails of the creeds can do for us. Heavenly Father, as we uh, dive into this, I pray that you would uh, just give me the uh, winsomeness to convey truth uh, effectively, that uh, you would give everyone here a, a spirit and a heart that desires to listen, to understand, to hear, and uh, just that you might uh, let everything that is true go forward and anything that is not to fall by the wayside. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right. So I know what you're going to say. I don't need a creed. I got a Bible. I got Jesus. And I don't need nothing else. And this is what I have to say to that. Amen and amen. Thank you very much. I hope you have a wonderful week. <laughs> All true statements. I completely agree. All you need is Jesus and God's word, and you would be good. But what does the word itself tell us? about what we can learn from those who came before us and what we can do in our lives to guard ourselves against bad ideas. If you would, open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to do a quick look into what the New Testament has to say on this particular matter. We're going to start in verse 11 once you get there. Ephesians is kind of toward the far end of the Bible in your New Testament. On the, if you get to Romans, keep turning right. You'll get it to it when you get on the other side of 2 Corinthians or sorry, the other side of Galatians. All right, so we're in chapter 4, and we're starting with verse 11. And he, that is God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, the saints being us, the body of Christ, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow. Grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we all serve each other as Christians. We, the saints, build up one another. We speak truth and love to each other. And through doing that, uh, Christ's church is built up. It is enlivened. It is protected. 
Now, an important thing to remember is that when we're talking about the church, we are not just talking about the people who happen to be up and walking around. We are talking about the church who has also come before us. There is a whole pantheon of saints who have come before us, who have passed on to glory, who are also part of this church. It's not just living Christians. There's a really great quote from G.K. Chesterton. Uh, he conveys it in a way that only he can, where he talks about tradition. He says, tradition means giving a vote to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is a democracy of the dead. The quote goes on, says, tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant ol oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. All Democrats object to men being disqualified by an accident of birth, but tradition objects to their being disqualified by the accident of death. Democracy tells us not to neglect a good man's opinion, even if he happens to be our groom or our shoeshine. Tradition asks us not to neglect a good man's opinion even if he is our father. I thought that was a great way of talking about the way that we pay attention to tradition. Uh, J.I. Packer, uh, I'm learning, you know, C.H. Spurgeon, G.K. Chesterton, J.I. Packer, if there's one thing to be learned, it's that if you want to really be a holy person of God, you need to have two initials and then a last name. So here's J.I. Packer. Tradition is the fruit of the Spirit's teaching activity from the ages, as God's people have sought understanding of Scripture. It's not infallible, but neither is it negligible and we impoverish ourselves if we disregard it. I think that's a great distinction. Only scripture is God-breathed. Only scripture is infallible. But we impoverish ourselves if we do not pay attention to that which came before. So we have some good examples of this from the Old Testament. So we'll look at a couple of those really quick. There are, in uh, scripture itself, old creeds that people used to say to themselves. We did one for our very first scripture reading this morning. It's known as the Shema. It's Deuteronomy 6.4. So in the original Hebrew, uh, you, if you have any Jewish friends, you may have heard them recite this. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If you've ever gone over to the house of someone who is uh, orthodoxly Jew, uh, Orthodox Jew or who uh, believes, they'll often have a little Torah scroll on the side of the uh, door, uh, their door frame. They'll touch it often as they go in and out of the house. Written on that scroll is the Shema, this little section of scripture. Uh, this is a, a thing that from as long as Israel as a nation has existed has been something that the people have recited to themselves over and over and over as a reminder of who their God is and that there are no others. In the New Testament, we have examples of this as well. Uh, there's what's known as the Kyrios Yesu. It's uh, Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a great little section of scripture, and that became what was known as the Kyrios Yesu because it was a counter to what existed at that time, which was called the Kaiser Kyrios. So Caesar, uh, Roman emperor, was uh, intent on everyone worshiping, uh, worshiping him as though he was a god. And so he would require people to offer a little pinch of incense and say, Kaiser Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. Christians obviously could not do this. This is worship of an idol. And so instead, they would repeat the Kyrios Yesus. They would say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that was a lot of times the last thing that some of these people said before they were killed. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, what's known as the Carmen Christi. This was believed to be a very common hymn. Uh, this was something that uh, uh, we believe uh, was quoted in writing this letter. So starting in verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. 
he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the death, even a death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a fantastic creed that one is. So these are three examples of creeds that were repeated by the early church, sections of scripture that are just such wonderfully condensed chunks of truth that they memorized them and kept them close at hand. So really quickly, let's talk, what is a creed? Creed is just Latin for the word credo, which means I believe. So a creed is a statement of belief. You are saying, I believe this, and then whatever you repeat. Uh, so all of that history now, let's take a look at the Apostles' Creed specifically. Here's a quick history on it. As to the origin of the Apostles' Creed, it no doubt gradually grew out of the confession of Peter that we find in Matthew, which furnished its nucleus uh, in um, the article about Jesus Christ, and then out of that came a baptismal formula, which determined the Trinitarian order and the arrangement. So as we read it, you'll see there's like a Trinitarian order arrangement to it. It cannot be traced to any individual author. It's the product of the Western Catholic Church, which is distinct from the Eastern Church, which has the Nicene Creed. Um, it uh, emerged sometime within the first four centuries. It's not primary, it's not apostolic, but it's secondary, ecclesiastical. That is, it didn't come from the apostles, it's not inspired, but it came from the church. It's ecclesiastical. It is not the word of God to men, but the word of men to God in response to his revelation, which I think is a great way to put it. It was originally and essentially a baptismal confession, growing out of the inner life and practical needs of early Christianity. It was explained to those who were to be baptized as the last stage of their preparation, and often it was repeated with the Lord's Prayer for private devotions, and afterwards it was introduced into public services. So this is not something that just popped up. It's called the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles didn't write it, but it's a distillation of what the Apostles taught, and that's why it's called the Apostles' Creed. So looking at it again, you can see all of these portions here. This is a really, really great litmus test that we can use to uh, determine whether or not a particular belief or belief system is within uh, the realm of Christianity or outside of it. Uh, it's a great distillation of a lot of scripture, and who boy, I hope you're ready for a ride, because we are going to go through all of that scripture right now, phrase by phrase. So we start at the top, and we're going to go through. First, we have... I believe in God. Sure hope you believe that. Deuteronomy 6.4, that's our Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That's where we start. Amen and amen, I believe in God. And then we move on. Who is God? The Father Almighty. Romans 8.15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. He is our Father. And Almighty, Job 11.7, can you find the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? God is both our Father and He is Almighty. Going on, we call Him the Maker of heaven and earth. Genesis 1.1, we all know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Job again, 38.4, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? God says to Job when he questions him, God made all that is and nothing that exists exists apart from Him. Again, we go on, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. John 3.16, we all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We also have in 1 John 4.9, 
In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Again, John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is the son of God, and he is our Lord. Next, we have who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Luke 1, 30 through 35. And the angel said to her, her being Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Ah, remember that heresy? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, that will be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. There's no wiggle room in that verse. But I'm willing to bet you don't have Luke 1, 30 through 35 memorized. So when that heresy shows up, if you've got the Apostles' Creed in your pocket, you know this is something that is off. Born of the Virgin Mary, Luke 2, 6 through 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And so she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Jesus was born of Mary. He was conceived immaculately, but he was born of woman so that he might fulfill the prophecies of the lines that he needed to come from in order to be the Messiah. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, John 19, 1 through 3. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put, on, put it on his head and arraigned him in a purple road, robe. And they came up to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Jesus suffered. He was crucified. Here we're in John 19, 16 through 18, and then verse 30. So he, being Pilate, delivered him, being Jesus, over to them to be crucified. So they, the Roman soldiers, took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they sacrificed him, and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So he was crucified, dead. Jesus died, John 19, through 37. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may also believe. For those things took place that scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. There's no question that Jesus died on that cross, and that he was buried. John 19, 40 through 42. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Stick with me. We're rolling. We've got the third day he rose from the dead, starting in John 20, 2 through 9. And she, being Mary Magdalene, ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, to the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, 
not lying with the linen cloths, but folded in a place by itself. And he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Going on, he ascended into heaven, Acts 1, 9 through 11. And when Jesus had said these things, when they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Godfather Almighty. Acts 2.33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, being Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We'll run through these really fast because they're from Revelation. The nations raised, your wrath came, the time for the dead to be judged. Moving on then to 19, 19, 11 through 16. For then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one offer on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is Christ returning to earth and making war upon earth in judgment. And then again in chapter 20, verses 12 through 13. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead in them, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done, living and dead. Christ will come, and he will judge all. I believe in the Holy Spirit, John 14, 16 through 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. In John 20, 22, and when he said this, Jesus breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Universal Church, returning back to Ephesians 2, 19 through 21. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That goes on in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22. For as one man, by one man came death, by another man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all shall die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And then in Romans, for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We believe in the resurrection of the body, 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49. This details Paul talking about how, uh, in talking to them he says, how can you say or question that the dead will be raised? And this is where he details that we will receive a new body, that when Christ returns, when there's a new heavens and a new earth, just as the way that we saw Christ when he returned and he had a physical body, Glorified, we too will receive physical bodies, but now glorified. We believe in the life everlasting. Revelation 21, 1 through 7. Sorry, Ben, I'm kind of skipping just a titch. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and they were no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven by God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
there is going to be a life everlasting, and it will be in the new heavens and the new earth. So thanks for running with me through all of that scripture. We get to the end and we say, amen. The Bible says amen. So, recap. We didn't even read all of it. All of that scripture. And this is just the stuff that like directly, like, man, if you want to expand on some of these things, you could make that list way deeper. All of that scripture is contained within the statements of the Apostles' Creed. So I have to ask the question, how many of you are planning to memorize every single one of those verses? Shame on you. Good job, Matthew. We got one. Shame on you if you did not raise your hand. Every last one of us should be raising our hands to say we're going to memorize it. But let's be honest. None of us are saints. We are all sinners. We are all men with feet of clay. And so as much as it would be the best if we were to memorize all of this and have that at hand in our hearts, if we don't have the best, it is also not bad to have good. So it's best to know. But a summary version that we do have memorized is a very good guardrail. So let's return back to our car crash. It is best to stay on the road. It is best to not try to go off the edge of a cliff, whether intentionally or by accident. But if something goes wrong and you do accidentally go off the edge, if you have a guardrail, something might be able to catch you. That's why we have guardrails. Keep you from going off the edge of the cliff. So. Now we have to ask the question for our personal application here at OVBC. Why are we planning to do this here? So we are planning to, over the next few weeks, every single week, be reciting this Apostles' Creed out loud all together. And the goal is to get everyone here to memorize that Apostles' Creed and have it in your heart, stored away, ready to go as a reference point. Once we get to a point where we feel like everyone's got it well stored away, we'll probably transition to doing it once a month, something like that. We don't want it to become rote to where you're not really paying attention to the words you're saying anymore and it doesn't have meaning. But we do want you to have these true statements stored away, ready to go. There's a great uh, quote from uh, Reformation Worship. We got this from uh, Dustin. It says, the reformers believe that when the church worshiped on earth, she ought to show her age. Very different from modern conceptions. One which reached back not just to the early church fathers with the Apostles' Creed or even to Christ with the Lord's Prayer, but to Moses and Israel with the Ten Commandments. Any church that cuts itself loose from this stream of Christian worship through history is a church that risks severing itself from her heritage and from her head, that is Christ. Thus, when the church gathers for worship today, as we are, she ought to reveal her ancient roots. We worship on the shoulders of those who have worshiped before us. We worship all the saints, with all the saints, present and past. So why are we doing this at OVBC? First, because the church is not new. The church was founded 2,000 year, years ago by Christ and his apostles, and it has existed for that whole time. And we rely upon the history and tradition of that church and what came before it. OVBC, us locally, we are a local expression of an ancient and apostolic church. We stand on the shoulders of those who worship before us. And so when we recite these creeds, when we recite the Apostles' Creed, the same ones that our brothers and sisters in ages past recited, it's one of the ways for us to reach back across millennia, take the wisdom and knowledge and faith that those people had and bring it forward so that we too can be strengthened by the same things that they were. So 
Given all of that, we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed one more time all together. So if you don't mind, out loud, we'll read it. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So there's going to be a temptation to kind of read those words, not think about them, you know, not disconnect your mind while we're doing it. This is my encouragement, the encouragement of the elders to you. Memorize this. We want you to memorize this, to have it at hand, so that you can be prepared for what the world is bringing our way. Heresies are not new. They're just reborn in different forms. You're going to be hit with the same stuff that every other Christian throughout history has been hit with. And we as elders would do our best to teach you truth every single Sunday and be there with you. But this is going to be one of the best ways for us to help you to be guarded against some of the foolishness that you will see in the world. So this will become your little business card version that you can keep in your back pocket so that you don't have to memorize that giant pantheon of scripture that we went through. But you will know when someone tries to tell you something like, maybe Jesus wasn't born of the Virgin Mary, maybe it wasn't an immaculate conception, you can say, I know what I believe. I have a credo, I have a statement of belief, and I believe that Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. You might not be able to run to scripture and say, chapter and verse, this is where it is, but you will at least have a guardrail so that when something comes that wants to take you off the edge of that cliff, you'll get caught, you can stay on the road, and then you can go find all of that evidence that you need in scripture, get back on the road, keep going down the straight and narrow. So go ahead and pray with me. I hope you'll be encouraged by this as we have been, and then we'll have uh, Rob come up and pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you very much for this time together. We uh, pray that you would just allow these words of this uh, ancient creed to seek deep into our hearts. Let it be something that we truly strive to memorize and have at hand so that as we, uh, as we move forward in this world, as the world continues to find uh, myriad ways to just draw us away from you, we can always have a firm rock to stand on, something that lets us know these are the essential doctrines. These are the things that I believe in the face of anything. I pray this on your most gracious, holy, and worthy name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.